My name is Edward Sturton. I'll be the, the sort of Simon Cowell figure, if you like, this evening. Um, a couple of brief announcements first. Uh, for those of you who Twitter, well, I'd say don't, but what it actually says here is you should know that the hashtag is at LSEA, well, at LSE analysis, rather. Uh, but obviously put your phones on silent if you could so it doesn't interrupt the performance. Um, the programme that we're going to record this evening is going to be broadcast on the 29th of June on Radio 4, 8.30 analysis, repeated the following Sunday. So um, try and get a good question in and you might find yourselves on the air. Um, that's really, I think, all I need to say. J- just one other thing. Uh, we might also, at the end, have to do a couple of pickups if there are things I fluff at or we want to retake something. So if you can stay in your seats at the end. The only other thing to say is, is um, it's always a bit sort of false having doing an interview with somebody in front of a room full of people when you're also talking to another audience. I once had to interview the president of South Korea in Buckingham Palace. It was a state visit. And we were in one of those grand reception rooms, and he insisted that his entire cabinet sat and watched us throughout. And at the end, they all got up and applauded. It was the most unsettling (laughs) experience. So um, if in the course of our discussions this evening, I'm going to try and bring you into the conversation as much as possible, but if you feel you want to applaud, laugh, perhaps not boo, but, you know, do do make your presence felt um, as we do the recording. And as I say, do, and keep, keep your pencils ready because I will be asking you to um, join in with questions at a couple of occasions in the course of the recording. Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science for the next half hour. We are going to be indulging in thought experiment here. This is an unusual edition of analysis in the sense that it takes the form of an on-stage conversation with a single guest in front of an audience But you can, of course, expect the usual rigorous analysis standard of argument, certainly from our guest, who's a distinguished philosopher. And we're not for a moment breaking with the analysis tradition of taking on big subjects. We're going to be talking about death and the afterlife, no less. Our guest is Samuel Scheffler, university professor in the Department of Philosophy at New York University and the author of a series of lectures and, indeed, a book with the title Death and the Afterlife. Please welcome him. Uh, But I'm actually going to begin by putting a question to you, uh, our audience, rather than to our guest. Listen carefully. I want to know how many of you think our world and our species will continue to exist after you die? If you think that, please stand up, that our world and our species will continue to exist after you die. Pretty much unanimous. I think there may be one or two people with different ideas at the back, but pretty much everyone in the audience has stood up. No, 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 don't sit down yet. I won't keep you on your feet for long. But I want you to consider the proposition that the world as we know it, including the human species, will come to an end very soon after your death. If you knew, for example, that 30 days after you died, this planet and everything on it would be wiped out by, say, a giant asteroid, would that change the way you lived and the way you approached your life? So if your answer to that is yes, if you think your life would be changed by the knowledge of the world's certain destruction, not during your lifetime, but very soon afterwards, sit down. 
Well, most people have sat down, but there's still a few people standing. Thank you very much indeed. You can all sit down now. And that suggests, Professor Sheffield, that you've probably got an audience here that's sympathetic to what you're trying to do. Before we explore that thought experiment, just one bit of definition. When you talk about the afterlife, you don't mean what the Pope or an imam would mean by the afterlife. Before, Professor, we explore uh, what you're trying to get at with your right. thought experiments, just let me get one um, point of definition right. When you talk about the afterlife, you don't mean what popes and imams mean by that word. Right. Um, I use the word in a, um, in a extremely non-standard sense. I use the word afterlife to refer to the lives of others continuing after one dies oneself. So the fact that other people will live on after I die is what I refer to as the, after, the collective afterlife. Not personal life. Not afterlife. personal afterlife. Right. All right. Well, that, as I said, that thought experiment comes from your, your book and your lectures. What, what were you trying to get at with that? Well, um, most of us, most people, most of the time do take it for granted that other people will live on after we ourselves die. We don't suppose that the world will come to an end at the same time that we die. Um, and we take it so much for granted that we rarely stop to think about the significance of that assumption. Um, my thought was that it's actually a quite significant assumption, that a lot turns on our um, implicit understanding that life will go on after we ourselves are gone, and that it would be worthwhile to spend some time reflecting on the significance of that fact. Before we delve further into that, there's also another thought experiment in, in the book to do with P.D. James, or taken from P.D. James, That's the right. great thriller writer. Just take us through that, if you could. Right. Well, the, um, the first thought experiment is the one you've mentioned, that you imagine that, the, that somehow you know that the Earth will be destroyed uh, in a collision with a giant asteroid 30 days after your death, though it won't hasten your death in any way. You'll live the same life you would have lived otherwise. The second uh, scenario, uh, which I sometimes call the infertility scenario, the second thought experiment, um, taken from P.D. James's book, The Children of Men, is a situation in which the human race has become infertile. Um, at the start of her novel, no baby has been born in over 25 years, and so the human race is gradually dying out, uh, just not because anyone's dying prematurely, any individual's dying prematurely, and not because anyone's being killed, but just because no new people are being born. So in both cases, humanity in both cases, is humanity about is to disappear. Yes. Give us an example of the ways in which that changes our approach to life and, and, the, and the way we understand our lives? Well, if we start with the first thought experiment, um, the first thing to be said is that, as most of the people in the audience uh, seem to agree, um, the prospect that humanity would be, become extinct shortly after one's own death um, is one that would be at least profoundly unsettling to most people. Um, it would be very distressing. Um, and that fact itself is interesting. I mean, there's a strand in our culture that would lead one to believe that the only thing that matters to a person's life is the quality of their own experiences during their lifetime. But the fact that we would be very distressed by the thought that human beings were going to die out, we're going to disappear soon after our death, suggests that what happens after our death 
also matters to us. It's not one of our experiences. We wouldn't be there to experience it. Um, but that um, suggests that something matters to us that we might not have realized matters to us. But it's not just a matter of how we feel. There's also the question of what we would think it was worth doing in the time that remained to us if we knew that uh, human life was soon to come to an end. And my suggestion is that there are a lot of things that we now think are worthwhile to do, activities we now think it's worthwhile to pursue that would not obviously make sense or as much sense to pursue under those circumstances. So your first thought is a cheering one. We're not quite as selfish and egotistical as we're sometimes led to believe. Yes, that's right. That's right. We are not as focused on our own experiences and our own sensations and our own uh, the, the quality of our moment-to-moment experience as we are sometimes tempted to think we are. And your second point is that we do things sometimes not because they're going to benefit us, but because they're going to benefit future generations. Yeah, I mean, lots of people engage in activities um, with the understanding that the ultimate payoff of those activities may not take place until after they're gone. A scientist or medical researcher trying to find a cure for cancer or some other disease may perfectly well understand that the... um, that he or she is making a contribution to a process that may take a long time to succeed, and, this, and the payoff may come only after they're gone. They don't think, oh, well, I'm not going to bother doing research on cancer unless I can see the payoff in my lifetime. Um, in fact, many activities we take for granted that they're worth engaging in, even if they ultimately benefit people only after we ourselves are gone. So in your scenario, somebody researching for cancer, for example, might think actually this just isn't worth doing. That's a, that's a very obvious change that might be brought about. That's right. I mean, if you know that uh, you're a cancer researcher and you know that the, uh, the Earth and all of its inhabitants are going to be destroyed 30 days after your death, you might well wonder whether it made sense to pursue this research whose benefits, presumably, you were expecting to be realized for a long period of time, quite possibly beginning only after your death, but then extending far into the future. If there is not very much of a future left, then you might think this no longer made sense to do. And similarly for other sorts of projects. Well, what about transient things, though? I mean, transient pleasures, listening to a wonderful piece of music, making love, something of that kind. Right. Um, Well, um, in her novel, P.D. James, although she puts it in fictional form, she makes the somewhat more radical suggestion that even those transient pleasures um, might be inhibited by the uh, knowledge that the human race was dying out. So in her example, it's not an asteroid, it's this situation of universal infertility. And she, as she describes it, people have a harder time finding pleasure in music, food, Uh, even sex. Um, The government in her story has to encourage um, sexual activity through the establishment of national porn shops because they're still hoping that something will change and that the infertility won't prove to be um, irreversible. But, uh, and and many people initially find that implausible, the thought that would be less um, interested in these pleasures of the moment, as they might seem. But on reflection, um, it may not be such, a, such an outlandish thought, although people's reactions might vary. I mean, we all know that the experience, the, how rewarding it is to listen to a piece of music uh, can depend on your state of mind. If you're preoccupied or anxious or 
unhappy. The music, you somehow may not be able to um, enjoy the music or to find it as rewarding as you otherwise would. So what goes on, what your beliefs are and what your state of mind is at, at the moment can affect what, how you experience even the momentary or day-to-day uh, pleasures. And, and are, you, are you suggesting that part of your pleasure in, say, a piece of music is the awareness that it's something that other generations will continue to enjoy? No, I wasn't suggesting that so much, as I was suggesting that the goods that we think of as being completely experienced in the moment, goods like music or a good meal and so forth, um, occupy a certain place in our lives, and we have an understanding of what place they occupy in our lives. If we suspend our assumption about the conditions of life, if we imagine that life is about to come to an end, it's hard to know how that knowledge might affect our capacity to... Uh, experience the uh, experience rewards. Think about going out to a nice dinner with your friends, I mean, and have, enjoying the pleasures of food and conversation. Well, if human beings are dying out uh, day by day and week by week, month by month, it's not clear that the meaning of the meal or its significance or its rewards would be as available to people as they might otherwise be. What about sport? I mean, would you enjoy going? Perhaps you wouldn't if, if you knew that you were watching the last World Cup or that the World Cup was going to disappear. But perhaps that would detract from your pleasure in that too. Well, sport and games are interesting examples because they already... There's something artificial about them from the beginning. That is, they set up rules of significance that people who take them seriously... Um, buy into. I mean, you, you accept that it matters tremendously whether this group of people wins this game with, whose rules are somewhat arbitrary. Um, and of course, it doesn't seem as if the significance of victory in the World Cup depends on whether humanity survives. Um, but um, there's, the thing about games and sport is that they suggest that people actually are drawn to activities that have this kind of constructed or artificial significance. They want to play games. They want to do things. We're ve- there are very clear rules establishing who wins and what matters and what counts. If, if you had the feeling that many of the important things in life were disappearing, that it was hard to find value from the things that really matter to you, it's hard to know what games would mean to people. Maybe they would be things that were more attractive because they were with the absence of other ways of... Um, of finding value in your life, games and their artificiality might seem to offer something that was invulnerable to this kind of problem. On the other hand, um, that might not work because part of the re- what games do and sport does is offer us relief from our daily activities, which we take whose importance we take for granted. And if they were, if our daily activities weren't. Uh, were no longer rewarding. It's not clear that the sport would serve the same function. And what do you think your thoughts experiments would do to our sense of moral obligations? Would we feel freed from those, or would we be more liable, I don't know, to push someone out of the way getting onto the tube? I mean, what, what, what would it do to that? Um, well, of course, this is all completely speculative. I don't think it's obvious that, that we should expect dramatic changes in people's moral characters under these circumstances um, for a number of reasons. Uh, So I was imagining that many activities that we normally think it worthwhile to pursue would no longer seem as worthwhile to pursue, like the cancer research or other sorts of goal-oriented projects like that, or many others. But morality isn't a project like that. It's not something that you just do from 9 to 5 or for a certain period of time during the day. 
Um, morality is sort of woven throughout the fabric of a person's character, and it's typically internalized. The roots of moral motivation or moral dispositions are internalized at a very young age through sort of powerful and deep-seated developmental processes. And I don't think it's clear that morality itself would be likely to be dislodged very rapidly by this. I don't think this is covered in your book, but I think it's something you may have written about elsewhere. To what extent is your idea that uh, we need the future to make sense of our lives today uh, reflected backwards in the sense that we need history as well, that we need to be, have a sense that we're part of a continuum? Well, I do think that it's... Um, I, I do think that the um, importance of the future is... Um, is mirrored to some extent by the importance of the past, that it, part of the human predicament is to make sense of the temporal dimension of our lives. Um, we exist in time, and it, that presents us with puzzles and problems, and we want to understand our relations to the past and to the future. It's a little... I'm not sure that the past, the significance of the past works in exactly the same way, and I think it would be hard to develop a thought experiment that was parallel to the thought experiment about future extinction of the human race. I mean, you might try to imagine that human beings had not existed prior to your own birth, that somehow your arrival coincided with the arrival of human beings on Earth, and think about how that affected your values. But it's a little hard to do, partly because if you take that experiment seriously, you have to imagine such massive unreliability of your ordinary beliefs that that would be unsettling, not because of the loss of the past per se, but because you didn't know what you could what, what beliefs were credible anymore. So I don't think you get an exactly parallel kind of case, but I do think that the importance to people of the past is undeniable. So you've demonstrated with these experiments that the future, other people's futures, not our own futures, matter to us in ways that we don't generally think about, but actually, as you now put them, seem almost really quite, quite obvious in, in, in some ways. What, what is significant about that conclusion? Well, a number of things are significant about that conclusion. I mean, it, partly it puts... Um, it casts a somewhat different light on our um, attitudes toward our own mortality. Um, notice the cancer researcher knows that he or she is going to die, but that doesn't make the activity seem any less worthwhile. But the knowledge that everybody else was going to die or that, and that people weren't going to, knew people weren't going to existence, that might detract from the value of what, your, what the researcher was doing now. And so part of what this suggests, that in certain respects, the continued existence of the human race is more important to us than our own continued existence. That is to say, our capacity to find value in our own lives and activities is more dependent on the survival of others than on our own survival. That's quite striking in its own right. And it doesn't mean that we don't fear our own deaths or that we shouldn't fear our own deaths, but it does cast a somewhat different light on our relation to the, um, to the large group. I also think there are some practical implications to taking seriously the, how important it is to us uh, that human beings can continue to inhabit the Earth. We'll come to those in a moment or two, but I'm just going to pause there for you to introduce another character into this discussion. We've talked about P.D. James, uh, but you also draw on the work of Woody Allen, yeah. and you have, you have the, the dilemma, the Alvy Singer dilemma. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, uh, and, and why that's significant. Well, um, people often ask when, they're when these issues are being discussed, they often ask why it doesn't bother us 
Um, if we, most of us believe that human beings will eventually die out, maybe not imminently, um, but we don't seem terribly troubled by that. So why should we be bothered if we thought that, they, that human life was about to come to an end imminently? And I call, I call this question the Alvy Singer problem because it uh, in Woody Allen's movie Annie Hall, he has a scene early in the movie where the nine-year-old Alvy is being taken to a doctor by his mother because he's refusing to do his homework on the grounds that the human race is going to come to an end someday. All right, well, I'd, I'd like to open it out for questions from the audience um, at this point. I'm going to break the questions up a bit and, and we'll be coming back for more later because after we've had the first round of questions I'm going to talk to Professor Schepter a bit more about the, those um, practical consequences that, that he mentioned there. So if you can focus in these questions on what we've heard so far, uh, there are a couple of microphones and if you don't mind waiting for those to come to you I'd be grateful and if you could, could you say your names and what you do, particularly if what you do is relevant to uh, what we're discussing or the question that you want to ask so who would like to kick things off. Anybody like to kick things off? Come on, some of you must. Yes, gentlemen over here. Cheers. Uh, hi, my name's Pete Hall. Um, ha have there been any... Sorry, uh, hold on. Uh, the mic's working fine, yeah, you're right. Right. Uh, have there been any in-depth interviews of, for instance, cancer researchers looking at their deep motivations for what they do? You know, how do they themselves see their motivations? I've not done any field work to prove your theories. I have not done any field work. Um, and um, one might ask them what they're... One might try to do that. One would have to be careful to draw conclusions from it because, of course, I'm making a, a speculative claim about how their motives would be affected in a counterfactual situation which hasn't happened. Um, one could certainly ask them what, how, they think their, um, how they think their motivations would be affected by that, but I haven't done that, and I don't know of anyone who has. Somebody else who else would like? Yes, sir. Young man down here, the third row from the back. Um, hello, I'm Benjamin. I'm a student. Um, I'm just wondering if there's any significance as to how much more time there would be after death, um, as in whether it's simply a generation or just a few days. Well, that's sort of back to the Alvy Singer question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, the Alvy Singer problem looks at the two extreme cases, one where humanity's disappearance is imminent and one where it's going to happen in the very remote future. But then it is natural to start wondering to the extent that one might be very disturbed if it were going to happen very soon, how far back would you have to push it before... Um, you began to feel, well, it was okay. And I don't, you know, it's not as if there's a, there's a single right answer to this question. It's a, it's a um, question that pe I've heard lots of people give different answers to. Some people will say, well, they want a couple of hundred years. And some people say, no, that's not good enough. And I, I really don't know. I mean, but it suggests, my thought is that we want, the, the, we want to be able to feel that humanity is going to be a going concern for a good long time. Um, but that, but that's, there's no precise cutoff. But again, this is, um, you know, this whole um, issue is 
open for speculation, and my speculations are no more sort of legitimate than yours. But is the implication of what you say that we are essentially fooling ourselves and that we need to fool ourselves in order to live fulfilled lives? Because we know or we assume that humanity isn't going on forever and ever. We just need a comfortable sense that it's going to be a reasonable time after our death before it disappears. Well, so there is this thought that we ought to standardize our reaction to the two cases. Either we should be like Alvi and we should be just as bothered by the eventual extinction of humanity as we are by the prospect of its imminent extinction, or um, we shouldn't be bothered by either. We should carry on cheerfully even if we did know that the asteroid was going to strike 30 days after our death or, um, or that the human race were going to die out due to infertility. So those are, that's one I thought. Another thought is, no, it is reasonable to have different reactions to these two things. It is reasonable and not just a matter of denial to think that we needn't be bothered by eventual extinction. We might think, we might think of, there might be a variety of reasons for that. We might think that, um, well, if it's really a long time in the future, maybe there'll be a way around it that, someone will, that people will discover um, we're not intelligent enough or knowledgeable enough to figure out. Or maybe we think that it wouldn't be terrible if the human race eventually um, disappeared as long as it had had a chance to realize most of its capacities and potential in a way that we haven't, humanity hasn't yet done. Um, but it is a puzzle. It is a puzzle as to whether we should be equally bothered by both or not bothered by either or somewhere in between. Another question. Yes, uh, in the middle here in the, uh, the black T-shirt. Sorry. Hello there, uh, Jim Clark. Um, on, exactly on that point, I'm a biologist and evolutionary, we are prone to optimism and denial. They've served us very well so far. <laughs> on exactly that point, there are many threats even today, the environment, climate change, overpopulation, that may well end the, popula- end the world sooner rather than later, but denial sets in and everyone thinks it's okay. Wouldn't that be the case this time? Um, could you say a little more about the bit at the end when you say, wouldn't that as be in, the case this time? In the event of an asteroid destroying the world, yes, it might affect you know, society and things, but I think you know, you're underestimating people's capacity for mass denial that, that everything will be okay. Well, um, take the infertility case. I mean, I agree that people have a great capacity for denial and it's sometimes a good thing and sometimes a very bad thing. Um, but in the, what's nice about the P.D. James kind of example is that the evidence of what's happening is all around and the effects of what's happening is all around. I mean, nobody's been born for 25 years um, there are no people under the age of 25 left. There are no schools functioning. There are no playgrounds. There are no children running around. There, you know. um, so it's a little hard to deny in that admittedly hypothetical situation, a little hard to deny that something's happening. You might hold on to the hope that things would change. Um, but there comes a point when denial is hard to sustain. And I'm imagining in these cases that somehow denial wasn't really an option except for people who are desperately committed to denying the plain evidence of what was happening. But, but what's that? Like climate change. 
Um, I think we're we'll going to talk, talk about, about that, climate we'll, change we'll in a moment. For, for a moment, but I mean, yeah. but are you, are you in a way saying that the fact that we seem comfortable just with the idea that that humanity will go on for a, a long time, but we're not quite sure how long that should be, is comfortable because it allows for the poss- it does allow for denial. It does allow us to believe that somebody will come along and sort out a way of preserving us forever. Yeah. Well, you know that it may or may not be denial. It may um, a part of the. If you think that it's not going to happen for really a long time, if you think it's like Dr. Flicker said, billions of years, um, part of the problem is it's hard to know how to work with those numbers as applied to time. They just, we don't... We can't compute them. Yeah, we can't compute them. Our reactions, we can't internalize the significance of that in any very clear way. So there are a lot of possible different things going on. Um, some of which involve denial, some of which involve a hope which may be more or less realistic that solutions may be found by others. And in that context, what about the possibility of this sort of wild outside thought, but what about the possibility of life on other planets of, of recognizable? Does that, does that play into the equation, the thought that somebody else might survive us, if not the human race? race? Well, sure. I mean, there are all kinds of... Um, people have raised questions, a variety of kinds... Uh, along the lines of what you've just suggested. Suppose human beings were going to die out, but there were going to be other creatures who were going to come into existence. Um, And would that be better? Well, it depends on what the Martians were like. Um, I think that the bare existence of life of some kind elsewhere in the universe would be maybe a small consolation, but I don't think it would um, help restore our sense of purpose and value in the kinds of activities that would be threatened by, um, by these scenarios. Anyone else like to... Yes, um, lady down here at the front, and then I'll come to the lady a bit further back. Um, and then I think we might... Yeah, we'll see how we go. Hi, I'm, I'm Susan. And I was an Alvy Singer kind of little kid. Um, I, I wept as a child when I read that in 80 billion years the earth would be swallowed up by the sun, and I wept for my descendants. And then I didn't have children. <laughs> um, what about, have, have you found any, any difference in the way people feel about humanity coming to an end? if they have descendants or based on their own health problems or based on, you know, other, other factors? Because it's natural to worry about your own... You worry much more, perhaps, about your own children or descendants coming to grief in 30 days after your death than humanity as a whole, isn't it? Right. Um, so I haven't done any surveys, any systematic surveys. Um, my informal impression is that there isn't a great difference. That is... Clearly, um, people who do have children um, are very concerned about the fate of their children. One of the nice things, and that's one of the reasons for not stopping with the asteroid um, scenario, because one of the features of that scenario is that everyone you love or care about, including your own descendants if you have any, will be destroyed 30 days after your own death. But in the infertility scenario, in the James scenario, no living person is going to be affected. So if you have children or grandchildren, they're not going to be affected by this directly. 
all that's going to happen is that no new people are going to be born. Granted, your descendants won't have the opportunity to have descendants, um, but it won't be like anyone you love will be killed. It's just that nobody new will come into existence. It's actually quite striking that the, non, that the non-existence of unknown future people should have as devastating effect on us as it seems that it would. Um, even more devastating than the knowledge that particular people we care about will in fact die, which people, which is just the facts of life. Um, I don't think that the reactions I'm talking about are limited to people with children. I think that people without children are just as likely to find their activities jeopardized by the knowledge of humanity's imminent disappearance. Again, if you're a cancer researcher without children, cancer research still isn't going to make a lot of sense if you know that humanity is about to disappear. And it's not just goal-oriented projects like that. So I'm a philosophy professor. I'm busy writing some articles about political philosophy or whatever. If I thought humanity was going to disappear in 20 years, would I really be motivated to finish my article about political philosophy, I'm not sure that I would. And I think a lot of intellectual pursuits, even even though they're not goal-oriented in any obvious way, they're not like trying to cure a disease, involve a sense that one is participating in a temporal enterprise, that something that a conversation that exists over time, that you're part of a um, an extended tradition of inquiry that's going to be ongoing. And if you suddenly think, well, here, I'm just going to write you know, some little sort of piece of academic work on some confined topic, and then the lights are going to go out, it just somehow comes to seem pointless. And I don't think this has much to do with having children or not having children. I think it applies to to people, childless or not. We care more about the non-existence of non-existent people than we do not only about our own deaths, but we care more about that than we do about the deaths of those close to us. That's right. That is, um, the... um, People know that their own children and grandchildren are going to die. It doesn't, it doesn't make it impossible for them to con- carry on with their own activities or to find value in their own activities now. But the beauty of, say, the infertility scenario is that it seems to show that the fact that no new people are going to come into existence would exert a corrosive effect on our capacity to find value in our lives now. And that's quite striking. It's not that we care about these people as individuals. How could we? We don't know who they are, and they may never come to exist. But still, their non-existence poses a grave threat to our capacity to lead meaningful lives now in a very concrete way. It makes it unclear how many avenues there would be for worthwhile activity in our own lives. And the mortality of our, our own mortality, the mortality of our children, the mortality of everyone we love does not have that effect on us. People cheerfully carry on doing all kinds of things which they think are worthwhile and valuable. Even they know that, even though they know that they're going to die, their children are going to die, and everyone they love is going to die. But tell them that there are going to be no new people born ever, and suddenly um, things would look very, very different. One more question, I think, in this section from the lady there. Uh, and then we'll, yes, um, in the, I don't know which of you can, oh, where's, pass, pass the microphone back across the rows. That's it. Thank you. My name is Judy. And um, in certain spiritual practices, such as, you know, Tibet, uh, such as Buddhism, you know, you're supposed to meditate until you reach nirvana. And, you know, no matter what, that's, 
you should do that all the time. So in that case, you're always sort of in the present, and it doesn't really matter what's going to happen later. You're always going to do the same thing. So do you, have you identified um, cultures or religious practices that, that would modify their behavior more in response to what might happen after they die than others? That's a wonderful question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, I haven't. I'm not a theologian or a scholar of comparative religion, and so I haven't conducted the kind of studies that, you've, um, that you're asking about. But I think it's obvious that people's religious beliefs may have an effect on how they would react to these kinds of situations. And I don't want to... I didn't... In raising these questions and pointing and, and sort of raising the question of the significance for us of um, life going on in the future... I didn't want to presume to speak for people with religious views that I'm not particularly well acquainted with. Um, So I think, um, on the other hand, I don't want to assume that the problem will just go away, that it's a problem only for people who don't have religious beliefs. I think that if you're a religious person who's also a cancer researcher, there's still going to be a question about whether it makes sense to do the cancer research. So I think it's really an issue for reflection, and I fully expect that people with different sets of religious uh, ideas and practices will have different attitudes toward, uh, towards these questions. I'm actually going to take one more question in this gentleman there. Yeah, the second row from the back, check shirt. Hi, I'm Hari Prabhu. I'm studying anthropology and law here at the LSE. Um, so I was wondering how you think people would behave more recklessly in the first thought experiment. Um, would people fear their own death less? Would it be in the sense of sort of uh, exacerbated YOLO effect where it's like humanity only lives once and so people are less concerned about their conduct in their day-to-day lives? Um, well... In my version of the experiment, I'm asking you to imagine that you're the only person who knows that this is going to happen and how it would affect you. Um, If um, you're asking about a variant of that case, I guess, in which everybody knows that this is going to happen, would people be more reckless? Um, Some might be. Uh, On the other hand, I think many people would just be very, very sad And I think many people would find themselves not knowing what it was worth doing. I mean, what what was worth spending your time on? I mean, I think that would be the primary problem that people would be faced with. I mean, reckless in the service of what exactly? There has to be something you want to do recklessly. And it's not clear that... And that's really the problem. What would make sense to do if you knew that the world were about to come to an end? And I don't, you know... This is really, again, a question um, where I mean to be inviting other people's speculations, which are every bit as good as mine. Um, I'm not sure that recklessness would be the dominant reaction. I imagine there would be some people, um, but that itself should puzzle us in a way. Why be more reckless given that the world is going to come to an end than you are given that you know your own life is going to come to an end. I mean, why should the fact there are going to be no people in the future make you more reckless now? Um, Not obvious to me. What about you? Would you um, go on a bender? Would you behave badly? Um, Well, I hope so, in a way, because it would suggest (laughs) that I thought there was something worth doing. Um, I don't know what I would do, but I think I would find it extremely demoralizing. I think I would have a very hard time... Um, as I said, I don't think I'd continue with some of the things I'm now doing. 
Let me just go back to the um, gentleman who asked the question, if you can give him the microphone back. What, what, what impact would it have on your behaviour, the thought experiment? <laughs> um, well, I think, in a way, I'd, I'd hope it wouldn't matter because, I think, you see, my, my life itself sort of self-contained in, in a way, so everything, the only things that matter are what happens within it, and after I'm gone, then, in a way... It, doesn't matter what happens to everyone else if they if they stay or go. So I suppose I'm I'm more selfish in that way, and I hope I sort of lived the same. Uh, okay. Well, I, I, there were lots of hands going up, and I'm going to come back to you very shortly to get more questions. But let, let's just move on to the sure. the issue of the practical implications of this, and beginning perhaps since that's what we've been talking about for for our personal behaviour, for for living a good life, as it were. What 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 does what we've learnt um, from your thought experiments? Tell us about that. Well, if something along the lines of what I've been suggesting is roughly accurate, then the first thing we learn is that it matters a great deal to us that human life should continue on Earth. And um, it seems to follow that we should take more seriously than many of us do the actual threats, which somebody asked about, to the survival of humanity. There are grave threats to human survival, um, climate change, nuclear proliferation, general environmental uh, degradation, leaving aside the possibility of you know, rogue asteroids and so on. The, the, um, the one thing it seems that we should do is take serious steps to try to make sure that human life does survive. And I think that takes, means taking problems like climate change, for example, very seriously. So you've already demonstrated that your thought experience suggests we're more altruistic than we thought we were, or that we care more about other people, people we don't even know, than we thought we perhaps did. And you're now saying that, in an ideal world, that should feed through into public policy, if you like, that we should, we should think less about ourselves and our own comforts and, and more about what happens to the future. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to over state the degree of our altruism. I think what, I, what these thought experiments suggest is that we're actually much more dependent on others than we realize, that we're much more vulnerable to what happens to human beings, not only in the present but in the future, that we're more connected to them, if you like, than that. We still care a lot about ourselves, obviously, but um, we need other people to exist in the future or else our own lives are going to be um, uh, less valuable now, and I think that that should feed into public policy in obvious ways. I think that we should be taking better care of the planet and taking steps to ensure that humanity uh, has a future. Um, the New York Times recently cited some unnamed climate scientists as, as saying that the Earth could become uninhabitable by human beings by the end of this century. Well, that's not so very far from the sort of infertility scenario. And if it's serious, and if the specu my speculations are right, then it suggests that that's something we should be taking very, very seriously. And this is an occasion where denial is really damaging. That's fascinating. So you, it's a backdoor way into the climate change debate, really, your, your thought experiments. Yeah, and it, it's backdoor in a way, but um, the thing that's kind of nice about it is that when, when people are um, urged to do something about climate change, often... The spirit of it seems to be that we should incur sacrifices for the sake of those who will come later. Of course, climate change also having effects on people now, but, the thought, but there'll be worse effects on people in the future. 
Um, and the idea is that we should bear costs and we should sacrifice and we should give up this for their sake. But one of, one of the implications of what I'm suggesting is that, in a sense, um, that's not the only way to look at it. It's not just that they depend on us and our willingness to make sacrifices. It's that we depend on them. We need humanity to be an ongoing, flourishing enterprise in order to find value in our own lives. So, and that's a different kind of reason for wanting uh, humanity to survive. That's very interesting, because I was going to ask you why nobody had thought of your thought experiments before, apart from P.D. James and, and, and Woody Allen. But uh, perhaps the answer to that is actually the sorts of arguments that you're putting forward feel right at a time when you and others believe that the world, the future is threatened. Otherwise, it's, it's come about backwards, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that nobody else has thought of it. I, I, um, I've been told, uh, ever since I started discussing these ideas, people tell me other people have had similar ideas, and I'm sure there have been many. Um, but I do think that there is a kind of, within our culture at the moment, there's a kind of pervasive anxiety about humanity's future, um, reflected, for example, in the large and ever-growing um, number of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic novels and films that, um, that are appearing. And I think people are very uneasy about the future of human life. So in that sense, uh, this thought experiment may, in a sense, be a product of that very same kind of anxiety. More questions? Uh, yes, gentleman over here on the end. Thank you very much. Uh, Dimitri Zenzin, MS, LSC, uh, Philosophy and Public Policy. Just uh, regarding uh, the earlier question on evolution, I just wanted to um, dig a little bit deeper and talk about your assumptions. Now, there is a theory that uh, nature and evolution choose sort of procreation and mortality if the environment is friendly. On the other hand, if the environment is not friendly, nature and evolution would choose immortality. If we just assume we immortality, immortality, yeah, um, I, I suppose it is a bit far-fetched, but since we're on hypotheticals here, um, a second assumption would be if, uh, say, we tie in, uh, say, morality can potentially be evolved by evolution, would that not, both of these assumptions, would they not suggest that really our care about generations beyond our death, about people beyond our death, is really um, internal to our self-interest rather than an external factor. So it's, it's a survival mechanism, I think, is that whether, whether, whether this yeah. is... So you, this, you, this you idea think about of morality slightly more in evolutionary terms, and um, would that, would, given the fact that our self-interest, like, like for food, music, etc., they would just, in the moment, um, happiness would just get higher weightings than, you know, care for um, future generations. They would get the same weightings, internal weightings of what's good for me, but they would get slightly less weightings, and therefore your theory can perhaps be explained that way. Um, well, I'm not sure um, I got all of that, but let me just say that I was not imagining that the concern in question is a moral concern. I'm not imagining that we are all, what this shows is that we all feel sort of a moral obligation to look out for future generations. What I'm suggesting is that future generations 
uh, and the assumption that there will be future generations actually is a precondition of our finding worthwhile many of the activities that we now engage in, even if those activities don't have any obvious moral upshot. Me writing my philosophy article, I don't think that's a particularly morally charged activity. Um, it's a, um, but if I'm right in thinking, I'd find it mu made much less sense to carry on trying to finish the article if I thought humanity was going to die out. That shows not something about my moral convictions as it does about the um, extent to which the values that we have developed really are values that presuppose an ongoing humanity. Now, if it were to turn out that there was no you know, future for humanity, um, might we develop other values? The, sh the time spans we're talking about wouldn't be long enough for evolution to do much to, ch to change our values if humanity were going to become extinct in 30 years or 25 years. Evolution's not going to be able to do much about it. Could we just switch to other values um, I, I don't know. I don't think that the point is that our capacity to find value in our activity would be greatly eroded, and it's not clear that there would be other substitutes readily available. I don't think this, again, though, that this is a morality and self-interest issue. I think it's an issue about us trying to locate ourselves in time and about our awareness of the temporal dimension of our own lives. Um, so I don't know that that got at precisely what you were asking, and feel free to follow up as far as... Can, well, can I... Uh, yeah, yeah, what, sure. What you say about time is, is interesting. Could you explore that a bit further? You're suggesting that this, the belief in, in, in future generations is a way for us to project our own immortality in some kind of way or to master time in some kind of way? Well, I don't think it's our own immortality. I think that what the thought experiments reveal is that without necessarily being aware of it, we rely on a view of ourselves as participants in a temporally extended project, if you like, Which of human sort life. Sort of immortality, yeah. in fact. It's not personal immortality. No, but it, it, it's, it's similar. Right, that's right. And that we, um, we take that for granted. Even people who are convinced there's no personal immortality, take that for granted, and take that away, and we would lose something. Why is that? Well, it must be that it matters a lot to us um, that we have this connection to the future. And as, uh, as I said in response to your earlier question, I think there are similar, though not exactly parallel, concerns we have for our relation to the past. And I don't know, I mean, it's, I don't know exactly how evolution might or might not have produced or affect those attitudes, but we have those attitudes as things now stand. I think I saw a couple of hands going up. Yeah, there's several in this row. I'll take, it, take, you, take you along the row. If you, we start with the lady there. Um, well, I was thinking of the one in front, just immediately in front. Yes, no, yes, that, that's it, yeah. Thank you. Um, Terry Raby, retired risk manager. Um, I was just wondering about the choice of um, the cancer researcher as your type example. And I'm just thinking, if you chose another person, if you chose a bus driver, for example, I was thinking that you might well not get the same result because it's not so goal-directed. Um, but just to flip it on the other way around, so if you're a bus driver and you're going to vote, then you may well vote for the kind of person like the cancer researcher to, um, to progress things in the future, if you like. 
So not a, not a personal um, implication of this, but a second-order implication, if you like. Sorry, could you say that again? You might vote for... Yeah, yeah. So if you're a bus driver, you're not going to be affected in your behavior, it seems to me, by this 30-day yeah. um, possibility. Right. But on the other hand, um, supposing you're using this thought experiment and you're putting it to a bus driver and saying that might well change that person's outlook because they won't vote, if you like, for a person like themselves, uh-huh. but they will vote for a person with a more long-term view like the kind of people that you're using in your examples. Right. Um, so there are a couple of different issues raised by what you say, and they're, um, they're all good ones. So one, um, one issue is the, whether it's only goal-oriented projects like cancer research that would be affected. And my example of, you know, my sort of um, personal example of writing philosophy articles was meant to suggest that it's not just goal-oriented activities. It's activities that involve um, some sense of participating in an ongoing enterprise um, that would also be jeopardized um, And, of course, there are many goal-oriented activities other than cancer research. That was one I picked as an example. So I don't think it's only goal-oriented activities. I think there are others. But another issue is that not everybody is able to work at a job that they regard as intrinsically valuable. Cancer researchers are doing something they feel worthwhile. A lot of people... A lot of people don't have jobs. A lot of people who do have jobs have jobs that they don't find especially rewarding. They just, need to, they just need the jobs to be able to survive. So it might be that they wouldn't experience any less... Uh, they never experienced those jobs as valuable to begin with, except instrumentally, and that wouldn't change under the scenarios that I've sketched. Um, I think that's, that's true, but my... the question that I was raising was what, um, which, of our, which of the activities we now value would continue to seem valuable. The fact that many people have to engage in activities they don't value intrinsically is, you know, unfortunate perhaps, but it's not really directly on point. Um, the, the question is, of those activities that we do value, um, which of those would we continue to value? And there might be some that we would continue to value. I don't want to say that no valuable activities would remain at all. Maybe caring for the sick now is an activity that might continue to seem valuable to people, um, for doctors and nurses and medical personnel to do that. There may be um, a range of activities. The suggestion is just that the range would be considerably narrower than the range of activities that now seem to people worthwhile. Um, now people live in a world of, that's rich with value. There are many, many different ways to live valuable lives, and if, if not through your work, then through other activities. And my thought was that if humanity were about to disappear, that realm would shrink a great deal. To, yeah. You, can, Pastor, thank you. Yeah, so um, I was thinking that... Do you mind introducing yourself? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, my name is Leila. I'm from the Netherlands, and I'm just on holiday. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, the way you sketch it, um, to me, it seems that we all are going to become very depressed, basically. Um, If I'm going to die and everyone else is going to die 30 days later, um, 
my life is not worthwhile anymore. And you just said, um, yeah, the intrinsic value of things is going to go down, or a lot of things, like the whole skill, is going to get more narrow. But I was thinking, if it's inevitable that the world is going to end, um, maybe it's actually quite easy to get over it. It's like, okay, there's nothing I can do about it, and now I can find other reasons to live. So actually, maybe um, all like the intrin intrinsic value to many activities that swiped out will be immediately replaced by all these other reasons um, to live for. So, you know, the cancer researcher might actually start focusing on the here and now and the people who are here and do something valuable there. So the value might, actually, the value of life might not decrease, basically. It would just be Yeah. yeah, well, uh, you know, a number of people have made suggestions like that. And I think it is a plausible hypothesis that people would try to seek out activities that still seem to make sense, that still seem worthwhile if humanity's disappearance were imminent. Um, the question is really how easy it would be to do that and how many activities of that kind there would be and how many people. I think... I think you're absolutely right that that would be a strong response. People want to be doing things that seem to them to make sense, that seem to them to be worthwhile. My suggestion is that there be fewer such things available um, and that it would be more difficult to find them. But, and that's really all I want to claim. I don't want to say, give up, you wouldn't be able to do it. You know, you're going you're to just be miserable until the end. Um, no, that's not the point. The point is that the end of humanity would mean that the world of value as we now understand it would be under threat. It would be under threat. Lots of things that we now value would no longer seem valuable. We'd have to try to see what remained as worth doing. But mostly what it seems like we should do is try to avoid getting in this position in the first place um, by, do, by taking steps as best we can to try to ensure that humanity does have a good long future. Don't worry, you can still enjoy your holiday. You don't have to get away. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I think too long there was a, a, young, a gentleman... Yeah. Uh, hi, my name's John, and I'm an ex-philosopher. Uh, sorry, hang on. Why ex? Uh, I studied philosophy at UCL a couple of years ago. And right. haven't really But you still think? Now and again, part-time, yeah. So I wanted to flip around the P.D. James thought experiment a little bit. And um, so let's say no one is, everyone's still infertile, but the people that are still alive, let's just say... They just keep living forever. And like 10,000 years along the line, it comes clear that no one's ever going to die, like assume that climate change is not a problem, etc. Do you think that would shift the value of a lot of projects? So you said you wouldn't really bother writing philosophy papers if you knew everyone was going to die afterwards. Similarly, I feel that if time just extended into infinity there'd be a certain pointlessness to all our, a lot of our activities as well. So, I don't know, I'm trying to tease out... It seems like death gives a certain profoundness to a lot of our activities, and, I don't know, just your thoughts on the matter, really. So is immortality as damaging in some ways as the prospect of the imminent extinction of the human race? Yeah, actually, I completely agree with you, and that's sort of the topic of the third of the lectures in this book where I explored these ideas is just that, about the significance of our own mortality. I am one of those who uh, agrees 
um, that immortality, at least in the way that philosophers have thought of it, um, would not be especially welcome, that it would also exert a destabilizing effect on our values, um, that an endless life wouldn't be a life just like this one, only longer. It would be a one in which it was unclear what, our, what was valuable or worth doing at all. Um, I think that our actual values are pervasively shaped by the under the knowledge of our own mortality and by the pressure of limited time. We all feel under pressure to do things that are worthwhile and to decide what's worth doing and to have values, partly because we have so little time. The scarcity of time exerts a formative role on our development of our values. And if you suspend the scarcity of time, if you just imagine that we'll live forever, um, it's very unclear which of our values would survive or what ideas of value we would even have. So I'm inclined to believe that the, um, the situation in which individuals are mortal but human beings keep living is the one we need. It's the right combination in order for the values we have to be sustained, which doesn't mean that people should or do welcome their own mortality. They don't. We're complicated creatures, and I think we reason- many people reasonably fear death. Um, but I don't think that immortality is a is a, on reflection, uh, a viable option or an option that would give us what we want. Time for one more question. Yes, in the centre here. Do you mind hanging on for the up? My name is Klaus. I'm a physician. Um, You must have heard this before. I think Martin Luther had once said that um, if he knew the world would come to an end tomorrow, he would still uh, plant a tree, not plant a tree. So what do you think? I mean, he, he could have said, I would pray. Why did he say, if, if I personally would know that the world would come to an end, I would plant a tree? What do you think went through his head? Well, I can't speculate as to what went through his head. I have no idea what went through his head. I mean, it's a kind of heroic stance, a kind of defiant stance, that you're going to just carry on with what seems important, um, no matter what the future brings. And that is one possible attitude. I myself... I mean, it's to say, look, maybe people would lose confidence in the value of their activities if the world were going to come to an end, but they shouldn't, really. I mean, the activities remain valuable. It's just that the world is going to come to an end, so I should keep on um, uh, writing that philosophy article, and the cancer researcher should go back into the lab the next day and spend the last day in the lab, um, and the person who was trying to engage in a research project on seismic strengthening of bridges or buildings should go continue their research for one more day, and the person who's researching techniques of early childhood education should go into the office and do that that day, even though the world was going to come to an end at the end of the day. It's a sort of you know, um, heroic attitude in a way, I guess I just can't convince myself that it really makes sense. Um, The planting a tree version is actually maybe a little more um, sensible to me than some of the others. But but that's the best I can do. I can't speak for Martin Luther. There were a few of you at the beginning who said you didn't think the prospect of the extinction of humanity would make a difference to your lives. Any of you changed your mind? Um, Anyone who, who, who... thought that at the beginning, changed their minds as a result of what they've heard? No? Oh. Okay. (laughs) Never mind. 
Um, just time to, to uh, let you all know that next week's analysis is asking a very challenging but pertinent question. Do, why do American police keep killing so many black men? But tonight, thank you to our audience. Very good questions, very helpful questions, I thought. Uh, thanks also to our hosts here at the London School of Economics. Uh, but most of all, thanks to our guest, Professor Samuel Scheffler of New York University and author of Death and Afterlife. <laughs> <laughs>